we're investing so early, we're largely making a bet on people like PJ and Liz that they have the vision to build something great and special, right? And so that's where we spend most of our time is trying to get to know the founders, trying to understand their ambitions and understanding if we think that they can build a big company. When I wanted to quit my job to start this company, right? We were both my founder, <clears throat> Matt, and I were um, were working full time jobs, and um, knew we were onto something with this idea. We've been side hustling on it for a little bit. I mean, there's just nothing more ridiculous than believing that you're going to build a billion dollar company. I I don't know if I can like <laughs> say it any better than that. And you know, my husband loves me, but he's certainly okay. I'll tell you a story. This is the ProCo 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor hosting ProCo 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode is a different format. I'll be speaking with three Colorado guests and seeing if we can pull this whole thing together into a cohesive episode. See how I do laying this out. Chris Erickson is co-founder and CEO of Range Ventures, an early stage VC purpose-built to support Colorado's best and most ambitious founders, C.J. Wiley of Evolve introduced me to Chris, and Chris has coordinated a couple of the leaders of Range Ventures portfolio companies to join us. Chris, glad you could be here. Thank you. Thanks, Dave, for having me. Yeah, also, uh, Liz Georgie, co-founder and CEO of Suna, a content creation platform that makes it possible for e-commerce stores and marketers to create pro photos and videos easily and cost-effectively. Suna worked hard to pivot during COVID and recently raised $35 million in Series B funding. Here, too, is PJ O'Neill, co-founder and CEO of Nomad. Nomad has raised over $23 million in over three rounds of funding. Nomad has created a marketplace that serves small-time rental owners with guaranteed rent. I'm interested to hear how that goes and management services. So Chris, Liz, and PJ, I'm excited to have you all in the studio. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Listeners, here's how this is going to go. At least that's what I'm thinking. We're going to start with one-to-one brief conversations with each guest to get a better idea of their businesses. Then, and this sounds a little more like a debate protocol, but really I think we'll have fun. We're all going to jump in together and talk about the business of funding a startup, running a startup, and lots more. So everybody ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right, Chris, we're going to start with you. Um, And I gave a quick overview of Range Ventures. How about yours? Yeah, so Range Ventures is a $23 million pre-seed and seed fund uh, focused on investing in the best tech companies in Colorado. Uh, We started Range in July of 2020. It's myself and my partner, Adam Burroughs, who previously spent uh, a handful of years as a C-level team member at uh, Angie Home Services and then was one of the first C-level hires at Guild Education. Uh, We partnered to launch the fund because we were just amazed at the amount of talent that had moved to Colorado and was starting amazing companies. Uh, And when we looked around the investing ecosystem, we were also shocked to find that there wasn't really any institutional capital with the background that my partner and I brought. And we thought both it was an amazing opportunity to to support the ecosystem and an amazing opportunity for, you know, people investing in the early stage to get behind. Yeah. And I love the quote on your website. It says, something special is happening in Colorado. You know, when did you start Range vent, uh, Ventures? Yeah, we launched the fund in uh, July of 2020, but we yeah. we started exploring the idea in 
uh, May, really May of 2019 was when Adam and I did our first investment together. Yeah. And actually, it was an angel investment in Liz's company, Suna, which, huh. you know, there's a long story behind Liz, you know, cramming us down and not letting us get the check size into her company that we wanted. And we said, <laughs> we said we're never going to let anyone do this to us again. We need a fund behind this. So we they can... didn't have a fund. They couldn't lead. So what were, they, what were we going to do here? I'm delighted to be the inspiration. Yes. So, nice. so Liz was our inspiration for that. Um, and we just saw the opportunity time and time again from writing individual angel yeah. checks that we felt like we couldn't pass up the opportunity to, you know, have our full-time job be finding and supporting people like Liz and PJ in this ecosystem. Yeah, so that was a few years ago. Is something special still happening in Colorado or was that sort of the early and now it's something different? It it, it was, we, we like to say we, we were right and then i think slightly lucky and I, I feel a little weird saying we were lucky because of the pandemic but the, the trend of really smart talented people moving here of uh, later stage capital starting to invest in colorado all accelerated during the pandemic and you know every week it feels like i'm having conversations with just like brilliant people mm -hmm. that are relatively new to the colorado ecosystem and last year colorado startups raised around 6.5 billion dollars mm -hmm. in funding uh, up from around two and a half billion the prior two yeah, years. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. So speaking of brilliant people, I'll shift over to Liz. And, uh, y you know, why don't you help us with your overview of Suna? And we'll talk a bit, a bit about that. The way I talk about Suna is very straightforward. There is nothing that we buy on the internet that doesn't have a photo. But taking those photos is extremely slow, very expensive, and very tedious for brands. And so we take away all that tedium and all that cost by giving brands a central place where they can plan a photo shoot, have their photo shoot, and then get their assets delivered entirely online. So when you when you talk about that, I was on your website, and it's pretty cool. Like, basically, your customers send their product to your studio, right? Precisely. They send us the product. And it's, it's really smart because they actually build a photo shoot based on the content they need. They select things like, what kind of background are you looking for? Do you want a model? Is that a person or a dog? And once you've made all those selections, we use order logic to intelligently route it to one of our five locations across the country. Once their product arrives in our facility, then they're invited to join a virtual photo shoot. Our virtual photo shoot is the first virtual professional photo shoot in the world. It allows a brand to interact with their photographer in real time in the browser. They see every single photo and video as it's created within five seconds of it shuttering on the camera. That's super cool. And and is there a product though, like if you're if you're selling bikes or something like, I mean, how big of a product are people sending to you versus little stuff? The largest product we have ever shot is a garage door. Mm. So there is no limit to how large your products can really be. What is most important is that it's something that you sell online and that you ship to someone. So if you can ship it to a customer, in all likelihood, you can ship it to Suna. Yeah. Do they tell you to just keep it? I mean, at some point, like, what's the point of sending it back, right? Sometimes, yeah, or discard it safely and carefully. Yeah. Yes. You guys must have awesome garage sales or just great things for your... <laughs> I am not at liberty to tell you what happens with the products after they get discarded. That's all right. Now, uh, one business question for you, though. I mean, during COVID, and we talked a little bit before we got started, I mean, you had you did make some shifts. You did make some pivots. And I remember reading something about, like, soon as struggling, now soon as raising zillions of dollars. So what well, happened in between? zillions yeah. of dollars. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, listen, I think my co-founder Haley and I really had the ambition at the beginning to build an entirely virtual business, but the virtual photo shoot platform we had built coming out of Techstars 2019 was not strong enough or technically sound enough to be able to support photo shoots all happening virtually. So we were doing some photo shoots in person. 
uh, in our facilities in Minneapolis and Denver. But when the pandemic happened, I literally uh, drove to my CTO's house. I locked myself in his house. We literally quarantined together, my co-founder, my CTO, Cal, and myself for 10 days. We rebuilt the infrastructure so that we could support the business entirely online and went entirely virtual. And that decision has served us very well. It's allowed us to completely change the game. Yeah. So without getting into it too much, I mean, what's the difference between what you're doing now? You know, it was always going to be virtual photo shoots. So what, how does that look different now than when you started? Well, we no longer allow a customer, for example, to book an uh, yeah, in-person yeah. appointment. If you want to do that, there's a quite a premium on doing that now. Uh, we also primarily support our photo shoots in large warehouses and actually in the homes and spare bedrooms of photographers in local communities. And so we've actually built a distributed workforce in addition to building just singular locations where our photo wow, shoots are Wow, that's serviced. brilliant. That's yeah. really brilliant. Wow. So you can have a distributed workforce all over the, wherever. Wherever we yeah. want. Yes. Cool. All right. Last, not least, PJ, <laughs> um, the CEO and co-founder of Nomad. How about your overview of Nomad? And uh, we'll dig in a little bit on that. <clears throat> yeah. So Nomad guarantees rent for residential landlords and we charge a monthly fee equivalent to how risky it is for us to do that. So if, if you're a landlord today, if you're a small time landlord, um, you experience vacancy in a really visceral really binary way, sure. right? So you may own a property and when a renter is not in that property or when that renter um, is late on rent, your mortgage is still due, your taxes and insurance are still due. Um, and that's really painful for, for most landlords out there. So we guarantee that rent over a one, two or three year period. Um, and we smooth that cash flow for them over a long period of time to give them certainty to invest in new properties. Um, yeah. and to focus their time on other things. So if somebody owned a property and they weren't having trouble with continuous, continuously leasing, I mean, there's no real value for them, is there? I mean, this is for somebody who was worried about having gaps in renters? Everyone has gaps in renters, right? So renters move in and out of sure, homes. Sure, sure. Um, so no matter how nice your home is, you will have those gaps. Um, Even in this market? Like, I I know people move out and stuff, but in this market, there's such a, a shortage. You're still finding a need? Yeah. So one, landlords love not only that certainty, but then all of the other benefits that come with being on the platform. So our our owners get access to a rent advance product. So um, you've never before been able to access future cash flows from a rental immediately. Wow. So we advance up to six months of rent um, for a fee today. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's an example of something you literally wouldn't have access to otherwise. You really you're adding liquidity to rentals for small. These aren't these aren't for people who own a thousand units. These are for people who own a few rentals or yeah, you know whatever. And and, yeah. and that may that segment might seem small, but as we look at the single family rental market, over ninety five percent of that market is owned by kind of the individual landlord or groups of individual mm. landlords. Um, Wall Street is starting to invest in this asset class, but they it's a it's a sliver. I noticed, the yeah, there are companies that are starting up to buy, you know, homes being built for rentals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They're not going to be your customers, though. You're still going to be the mom and pop investor, the person who owns one, two, three, out and a couple of properties. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. And the idea is we want to kind of give them a fighting chance. There's tens of billions of dollars of institutional capital sitting on the sidelines investing into this space today which will be challenging for an individual landlord. So does that, does that now open the market for, you know, if a land, if, if a small investor was interested, but was worried about gaps in rent, worried, you know, now you're essentially enabling small investors to start getting into real estate. 
Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're, we're expanding the pie. So a, a pretty typical use case actually for us is someone lives in their primary home. They've seen what interest rates have done. They've seen what the market mm-hmm. has done. Rather than selling that home, they want to hold it on, hold on to it as a rental. They're actually taking our guaranteed rent offer to their lender and they're getting financing on their next home because rent is, wow. already, is already guaranteed. That's super cool. Yeah. All right, everybody, here we go. Uh, I said that, but I'm first going to turn to Chris. You said you do pre-seed money, the first institutional check, right? So when you think about Liz, you think about PJ, I mean, how are you finding these folks? There's a variety of different ways that we meet founders in the ecosystem here. And we actually went back and looked at the prior year. Where did all of the deals come from? And then where did the best deals come from and the ones that we ended up doing? Um, And it really just, you know, stresses that how important relationships are in, in building a network. And our best sources of deals were fellow founders. So actually one of the deals we, we did this last year sent directly to us by Liz. Hmm. Still waiting on PJ, I think. I'm for, really for, trying uh, hard to be like the muse of range yeah. ventures. I'm, I'm hoping for the day when they have a portrait in their office. I think I've sent nice. some bad deals. Your that's, yeah. that's true. So I should have clarified that with that. Uh, and then other executives and sort of other yeah. founders in the network are, are the two best things. And I, and I think it's because you have amazing founders like Liz and PJ, like they already have an eye for what great founding talent looks like as well. And so people who are attracted to, to them and want to meet with them, you know, mm-hmm. have some similarities. And then I think they immediately recognize the skills and founders that, that we also yeah. like. So founders though, when they come to you and they ring, you know, they just send you an email or a text or whatever, I mean, they're like, they're probably 10 to one of the people who come to you versus the ones that are referred by trusted sources, right? So how do you, do you, can you even vet people you don't know? Is that possible? Is there, do you want to? Yeah, we, we, we want to meet everyone in Colorado that wants to start a company, right? That's in sort of the areas we invest in, right? Because you, you never know where great talent can come from. It, it happens more often than not to come through networks, you know, but yeah. there's great talent everywhere, right? And so um, th- there's almost no circumstance where, you know, Adam or I won't, you know, take an initial meeting with a company. It typically has to be something that's like very far outside of what we do industry-wise yeah. or very far outside of what we do geography-wise. But you wouldn't, you don't take a meeting if someone says, I got an idea, I want to bounce off of you, right? I mean, did they have to reach some sort of milestone, some sort of sense of accomplishment before you want to talk to them? So I, not really at no. all, right? I mean, I think, you know, Liz was, I think, a little further along than PJ having gone through Techstars and had a little bit more of the idea. But when we first sat down and met, right, like you guys were still both working, I think, at your jobs, right? Yeah. You, you just yeah. had a deck, right? And hadn't, you know, gone and left to start the company. And wow. We, we have a handful of other companies that were you know, pre-revenue, just an idea. We, we even did a, we did a deal um, this past month that were three folks and hadn't even written a slide yet, right, type of thing. And so that's how early we're willing to commit mm. to founders we believe in going after markets we're excited about. The wow. term I, yeah. I've liked uh, is founder product fit, right? So even before there's a product or a market founder market fit, it, do the founders have relevant experience? And mm. I think in the early stages that, that matters so much. Well, have you ever had an idea that you've gone in search of a founder? No. Yeah. No. We, yeah. We, 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 we're investing so early that fundamentally we're backing people before even ideas, businesses, products, or anything yeah. like that. Um, and so I think we're much better on the people side than, than the yeah. idea side. And we want to back founders that are passionate about their ideas. So Liz and PJ, how do you decide when it was time to look for outside money? 
I'm a pretty unique case in the sense that I had a bootstrap business for seven years. So I had built a business to about $3 million in annual revenue that I owned 100% of and really had gotten to a point where I decided I didn't want to make, you know, quarter of a million dollar commercials for General Mills anymore. It was fabulous and it was a great career, but I knew that I wanted to go build something much bigger and something that could help the little guy in the SMBs more directly. It was in understanding the size of the market that I was going after that I then understood the size of the volume of money I was going to need to build that, right? And so I ended up putting the first half million dollars of the company in in my own money to get Suna off the ground, to secure the leases, to build the first prototype. Uh, but I'm in a, I was really unique in the sense that I had that kind of capital and I had a husband who was willing to let me make that kind of bet. Uh but it ran out very quickly, right? And so it got to a point where I looked at my co-founder and I said, if we really want to build the preeminent company that solves for visuals on the internet, we are going to need a lot more capital. And so that's actually why we apply to Techstars is to really prepare ourselves and ensure that we could be successful at doing that. That's great. I'm going to turn to you in a second, PJ. Reminding listeners, this is Proco 360, named Best Colorado Business Podcast in 2021. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. Today in studio, we have Chris Erickson of Range Ventures, PJ O'Neill of Nomad, and Liz Georgie of Suna. Thanks to our sponsors, Kinsley Meetings. Hey, if you know you should be outsourcing meetings or conferences to a team that's worked globally with recognized brands, please call Steve Kinsley. Also, and, and Steve and I have been friends for years, so I can even vouch for the guy. Also, via technologies, thanks for hosting Proco 360. Check out the Proco 360 site, and you'll see what Clint and the team have been doing. Also, the Digital Frontier, Sarah Schaffner, bought that company about a year ago, and she's been applying her very entrepreneurial approach to transform the way business does printing and signage. So you can reach out to her at Proco360.com. You can see her and all the sponsors. So, PJ, when did you figure out you needed money and wanted to go get it? When I wanted to quit my job to start this company, right? We were both my founder, uh, Matt, and I were um, were working full time jobs and. Um, knew we were onto something with this idea. We'd been side hustling on it for a little bit, um, and learned quickly that customers wanted what uh, what we were selling. How can you side hustle a business where you're advancing and guaranteeing rental cash? Effectively, we were guaranteeing it ourselves. Without- <laughs> so we would be we would have been cutting the check ourselves had huh. had we needed to. Yeah. Um, but we, I was at a company called Open Door, which had scaled nationally as a you know a real estate technology company. Uh, in the iBuyer space. Um, so new, also new sort of the scale of capital required to get this off the ground. Uh, Matt was at Twilio, which very successful uh, company that had purchased the company he was at previously, SendGrid, another Colorado success mm-hmm, story. Yeah. Um, and so we we knew we had to quit our jobs. Matt had three kids. Um, and, uh, and so raising capital, you know, for better or for worse, was the only option for us. So when you were raising capital, you said your partner had three kids. You both were quitting your jobs. Did and, I, and Chris, you can jump in on this too, but can you raise capital that also replaces your income so you can live on a, you know, when you're starting? I mean, do investors want to give you a salary so you can quit your job? Uh, Chris is probably the better person to answer that. But <laughs> for, for us, we were, um, one, we didn't pay ourselves much at all yeah. to, to begin with. Two, we'd raised, we'd raised, we, when we first started to raise money, we, we went out looking to raise $500,000. We raised $300,000, but the contingent on raising an additional 200. So we weren't allowed to spend it. Hmm. And so we'd both 
quit our, our jobs by this point, and then COVID hit. And that 200K commitment dried up pretty quickly. Uh, so we were both without jobs, couldn't pay ourselves with the money in the bank. Um, but it opened up the opportunity to get on Zoom calls and talk to a lot of other investors. We ended up raising $1.9 million um, in that first round, um, you know, by virtue of being able to get on a lot of Zoom calls with a lot of investors. It is more efficient, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, Chris, what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. We we want founders to pay themselves, right? Um, we part of raising capital is both so you can hire the other people, but also so you can have a hundred percent of your time focused on building the company you want to. And if founders are worried about they're not making enough money or if their family doesn't have the resources, that's an even worse place for them to be, right? Um, it, but there's a fine line between you know what do you need to to live on to focus it versus what's egregious, right? Um, but I've only run into to one instance in the 17 companies that we've funded so far of sort of a, a founder a little too early, I think, pushing uh, the boundary of that. And I think actually more often than not, founders' uh, natural instinct is actually underpay themselves mm -hmm. a bit. Um, and we try to sort of, you know, nudge them into the right way because, like, we want them to be comfortable so they can go focus on the really hard thing that they're trying to do and they don't need yeah. another stress on top of that. Yeah. You yeah. can't actually build a great company if you can't feed yourself, it turns out. And so that's a really important caveat <laughs> to remember. Yeah. I think uh, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Now um, I, I see some deals too I, through like Denver angels. You guys probably know David um, and I've made some very small investments, but I've chosen a few and, but they all look good to me. I mean, everything looks good, right? I mean, so Chris, when you look at what attracts your attention, you've got lots. I mean, what what attribute of something that attracts like really makes you go, "Whoa, okay, this isn't this is interesting." Yep. So the framework that Adam and I use um, goes in this order. It, it starts with with people. Second is market, and actually third, and actually a pretty distant third is sort of the exact business or product that they're starting at that point, right? We're investing so early, we're largely making a bet on people like PJ and Liz that they have the vision to build something great and special, right? And so that's where we spend most of our time is trying to get to know the founders, trying to understand their ambitions and understanding if we think that they can build a big company. And so, you know, PJ talked about sort of, you know, founder market fit, right? You know, that's important. What gives them unique insight into the problem they're solving. Then the second thing that, that we focus on, and I actually heard this much better at a dinner that Liz and I were at last night, is, is the founder a resource magnet? And we also frame mm -hmm. it as like, can the founder sell? And it's along three dimensions, right? The founder has to sell to attract the first customers because you are your first salesperson when you get going, right? The second is the founder has to be a magnet for talent. You can't build a billion-dollar company if you can't attract amazing talent to you. And, and I'll give Liz and PJ a specific shout-out on this. Is like whenever we get candidates at range that we think are, are great fits, potentially we email them out to the CEOs of our portfolio companies. And like time and time again, Liz and PJ are often two of the fastest to respond to it. And I mm. think that they both mm. inherently get the value of attracting great talent to their companies, yeah. right? And then the third thing is you have to be able to sell investors, right? You are not going to build a billion dollar company raising one round of funding, right? You're going to have to raise multiple rounds of funding. And if you can't attract that capital, yeah, you're also not going to succeed. So you want someone who can sell not just you, but someone who you anticipate selling the next round of investors. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's something where, where range is unique. And I think I'm unique in this ecosystem from an investor perspective. Uh, when I was building apartment list, I have sat and been grilled by the investment committees 
of all of the top funds on the coast, right? And I know what that experience is like. And I sort of bring that judgment when I look at founders, like, can I see them succeeding in those rooms, mm. in those shoes? Um, and that's something we absolutely look for, even at the stage we're investing. Yeah. I think the flip side to that is, you know, as a founder, <clears throat> as you're looking for investors, you want to find the investors who can coach you, right? This is our first time raising big institutional capital. And so you want an investor who's who's going to be in the trenches with you, who can help get you to that next level. Um, most founders aren't born to raise a series D, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a journey. So did you try to change your persona to be successful as a fund, as somebody seeking funds versus just the guy that started this in his house? I fooled, you had to fool the first person. So it's the first domino. Um, but no, I feel like my persona has shifted not only as I pitch to investors, but as I, you know, hiring executive class people to join a business takes a different persona than getting your first 10 employees. So I do think part of, maybe it's changing persona, maybe it's growing as a leader, but um yeah, I think definitely. I've, I've experienced a lot of growth over yeah. the last couple of years. It's an evolution in a strange way, too, because the job that you have when you've raised your first $2 million is very different than the job that you have when you're raising, you know, $30 million. And so keeping in mind that you have to really be able to grow as a person in terms of your tenacity, your toughness. You're willing to take the no's and the yeses with as much grace. And I think I'm actually fundamentally the exact same person that I was when I started. I've only just become more myself through this process because, uh, you know, Maya Angelou says rejection is God's protection. And I truly believe in in that. You know, I believe that when people reject our business, whether it's a candidate or an investment, uh, it's protecting me from something. And when someone says, yes, dive deeper, go bigger, you know, be bolder. I also think one of the most important jobs, because I don't want to miss this, is you have to, as you scale your company, you know, PJ and I are both on this very distinctive journey where our companies have grown multiple X's over year over year. And the people that joined your company as employee two, three, four, five, they still need to know that they're part of the journey. They still need to be sold on the journey. And so I really believe that part of the CEO job as you grow and scale is helping your company continue to be passionate, excited, and renewed hmm. about the purpose that you're hmm. going after as a team. As an example of that, actually, on the way to this podcast, the reason I was five minutes late, I was meeting our- Yeah, here's the reason. Here it goes. <laughs> the, the, our very first employee uh, who works out works in the field most of the day, I met him at a house to walk a house with him. Um, and so I think just something as simple as that is a great way to kind of live that value that, that was mentioned. Hmm. You know, I, I still go, that's an interesting thing that you're more like yourself uh, or you're more of well, your- when you start doing impossible stuff, you go, God damn, I'm a baller. Like, look at what I can do. <laughs> I mean, it truly feels impossible when you start. You start and you're like, what I want to do is impossible. I want to build a billion dollar company. This guy's going to give me some money, but I got to turn that into a billion dollars. That's insane. But then you start to see the wins. You start to have victories. You do crazy things like I convinced the former CEO of Vimeo who scaled that company from $100,000 to $80 million in three years to be my COO. Hmm. You go, wow, I'm a wizard. Like, and you don't, I think do you, you don't think you've changed? Do you think you're still the same person? I am still that weird girl who grew up in the back of a canoe in northern Minnesota. I, I think I'm just tougher than most people that I meet. I'm willing to work harder and I'm willing to suffer more. 
And if you're willing to suffer, a lot of really good things will happen on the other side. And I think, you know, what Liz is saying, what PJ said, just goes back to our point of like, this is why we spend so much time trying to think about the founders, right? And we're backing them because I agree with what Liz is saying. Like, you have to find a founder who who can be themselves and do all of these really hard things that they're both going to have to do and go through. And that's it's a really unique person, right, who can do that. Yeah. I, I disagree a little bit, though. I think... <laughs> I don't see, I can't envision myself yet as a public company CEO. I know I've got a lot of growing to do to get there. And so I think, um, I think it's okay to recognize and to, to name that you've got a lot of growing to do already yourself, right? Just as I expect my employees to get better and to scale as we grow, I'm expecting that of myself too. And and so I think there's a lot of investing that you have to do in yourself as a founder to get there. Yeah. I, I think, so I guess the question I'd have is like, PJ, do you think though that is, that is different, or you're not going to be a different person or not have had that in, but it's just a commitment to learning along the way. And I think to Liz's point, like yeah. most, it's going to be really hard, right, to do that learning. And I think most people aren't willing to go through that learning. And, and having done some of it, like it's going to take a lot of, you're going to screw things up, right, on yeah. the leadership side, on the other side. And I think it's actually, it takes a special type of person to go through sort of the hard emotional work yeah. of being like, oh, where am I failing as a leader right now for where my company needs yeah. to be? And, and that's hard self-reflection. A lot of people yeah. are like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm not, I'm not going to change. Yeah. I'm just going to keep doing the same wrong thing. But great founders know how to learn, but they're still the same person. And maybe, yeah, right? to Liz's point, if you don't know yourself really well, and if you don't, if you really aren't comfortable with yourself as a person, those no's are going to eat away at Correct. you. Correct, yes. You are not going to be able to fight through that. So and I think, you'll change. You'll try to change yeah. yourself to get to a yes. Whereas yeah. Yeah. I think I've sort of like taken on as, oh, thank you so much for letting me know that you're not brave enough or interesting enough to want to spend time with me. Like that's, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, have, a, I have a really weird relationship with it. I would just argue though that you, neither you nor me are going to wake up tomorrow morning and be forced to be a public company CEO. Yeah. And part of what, is so special about the journey and I think so important about why folks choose to invest in someone like yourself is because you have the self-awareness to understand that at your core, you are a curious person who's going to continue to, to scale yourself while you scale your company. Yeah. And that's the challenge. Are you willing to stand on that ledge of growth knowing that you are constantly pushing yourself to the limits of your potential mm -hmm. and not many people are willing to push themselves to the limits of their potential. They'd yeah. rather Netflix and chill. Yeah, that's so true. I, I would also credit it, though. I think <clears throat> I'd be curious. Uh, having a co-founder through this journey has been really helpful for me because we push each other and we we are able to help each other see our blind spots a little bit. So that also, I'd be curious even, Chris, if you think investing in multiple founders is, there's obviously a limit, right? There's becomes a point where there's too many cooks in the kitchen. But I have found Matt and I have complimented each other through all yeah, this. Yes, co-founding is, is co-founding a better way to go in your experience, Chris, as a funder? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I have enough data to actually answer that yet. Is that a case right? by case thing? Yeah, you know, I think that there there's pros and cons both ways, right? Um, to it because co-founder relationships can be really hard, right? And you see a lot of co-founder relationships blow up companies as well. But also, as, as PJ's talked about and Liz has talked about her co-founder Haley as well, like there's a lot of things you can get out of your co-founder, right? Um, and so I think it's really about, you know, trusting the founding team, whether it's a founding team of one or a founding team of multiple, that they're all aligned to working together yeah. and share the same values um, and doing that. And, and especially if I meet founding teams of more than two, you know, that's where I do have a little bit 
uh, more trepidation. And before we invest in, in the founding team like that, we'll ask them to go through a values exercise, right? And be like, hey, let's make sure you guys are all aligned mm. on values of, of how you yeah. make decisions in the same goals. Because yeah. that's often where things blow yeah. up. Because two out of three is not a good idea. You, yeah, I've, I've been down that, that path mm-hmm. before and I have some stories about it that I'm not going to share here, <laughs> but you know, most likely all three people will not survive in the company. Yeah. Hey, this is Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Chris Erickson of Range Ventures, PJ O'Neill of Nomad, and Liz Georgie of Suna. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to my newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So um, one more question before we kind of start to phase down, and that has to do with Colorado's talent. And I hear great things from entrepreneurs that I interview about the talent in Colorado. What I'm wondering is, is there starting to be a squeeze? Like, is there not enough to go around or are we attracting enough? And does the talent search in Colorado have any impact on your ability to thrive or, or slow your growth? Either way, what are you seeing? I believe Colorado has become a secret weapon for companies that are starting here because of the talent pool. We actually are able to attract talent that has done exceptional work. I think of a recent hire that uh, Chris actually sent me from Amazon who moved to Denver and was looking for a change. And now in like week eight is absolutely blowing everyone's mind, Mm -hmm. right? And it's definitely given us an edge over the coast too, because people are happier because they're living in a place that generally makes them happier. Uh, People are excited about the community that they're joining. And there's less startup fatigue, I think, in general. You know, there's a certain amount of that hype that happens on the Bay, in the Bay Area especially, that sort of makes every startup feel like the most important thing. But because Colorado, it is a little bit harder to get started, to get traction, to get to the point where you have good funding, it does start to feel like people are much more authentically engaged Hmm. with the business. Yeah, we, other than my product manager disappearing to ski, on like any given week. Um, it's, you know, I, I've, I've been amazed. I think the two types of candidates that work really well are either people who have grown up in the Colorado tech ecosystem, right? So many of our best hires came from Guild or Sondermind, um, or Evolve Vacation Rentals, um, or people who have come to the coast, come from the coasts, um, have, have experienced high growth startups before, um, and are ready to, settle down a little bit and, and buy a house that they can afford. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I agree. Total secret weapon. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And as a Colorado native, it's been really fun for me to watch this ecosystem evolve. Um, as I was growing up, this ecosystem didn't exist. And so there were no guild educations to hire, you know, people from or Sondermines. We're all in this sort of together. Um, and that didn't exist as I was a kid. So I think it's really important that there is some critical mass, mm-hmm. um, so that yeah. we don't have to go recruiting on the coast every time yeah. we want to hire somebody. And one thing I'd add to that is I actually think that there is a, a shadow talent pool here as well that folks haven't tapped into yet. There are hundreds of people that have moved out here. They're still working remote for mm. Google, Stripe, Uber, Facebook, all of those companies. And at least my personal belief, I don't know about the rest of you guys, I am so over being on Zoom with people at this point that I think, not all, but I think a large portion of those people are going to want actually to have At some point, they'll transition to a Colorado-based company. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Hey, do the, it, it was funny. We were, we were waiting for some tech to get set up here in the studio, and the three of you just started talking. That Liz and PJ, you'd never met face-to-face, although you're, you've got, you sort of... Uh, 
vector here at Chris, but do you do this a lot? Do you just sit around and talk about this kind of stuff? One of the reasons I moved to Colorado and one of the reasons I stay in Colorado is because I have an amazing network of founder friends who I can go have breakfast with or who I can talk about, you know, life with. And I don't know that that it was like that when I even got here six years ago, but now it's very clear to me that I have an amazing network that I get to spend time with and and have real and authentic conversations with. I don't need to fly to New York for the week to to have those relationships. Yeah. And I think they're more authentic relationships. You know, I think my sense is, you know, in, in San Francisco, it's very much how much money did you raise? You know, when are you going public? Um, and that's, those are great conversations to have. It's good to push each other as founders, but I feel like I can go have a coffee with a founder here and talk about the hard stuff and talk about the stuff that isn't going well. And you really do need that support network to, this is a long, long marathon. Um, and we need, we need that as founders. So I get that you're talking amongst each other about the tough issues, the hard questions, um, things you're dealing with every day. Are you also, are you able to carve out any time to learn things that are absolutely new, to read new concepts, to listen to new stuff, to, you know, to actually inject newness into your perspective? I've added this podcast. To my ah, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> um, that's hard. I, I don't find myself reading as much as I used to. Um, I feel like sometimes I'm so heads down. Uh, so that's actually a New Year's resolution of mine. But curious to hear. Well, you know it's March for others. So, <laughs> hey, I know I'm. I'm reading. I am reading uh, a great book now. Actually, that was started by the book club the, that was founded at, at Nomad by by another employee. So, yeah, I think um, I think it's important. But I wish I did more of it. I'd be curious what you do. I'm definitely really invested in my creative growth as a person because I truly believe that one of the secret secret sauces at Suna is that we infuse so much creativity in our decision-making. And so last year I learned how to make my own paint, which was uh, nothing to do with anything, (laughs) but I decided I'm going to learn how to take pigments and turn it into my own acrylic paints. And I was very successful and it turned out fabulously. Uh, No, actually one of the strange things about being a non-MBA sort of non-prototypical founder is that I still hold my passions pretty close to my heart. So you know, every single day I probably am grabbing one of my Hasselblads or my Leicas and picking up a camera and doing something with it because it keeps keeps me alive, keeps me like mentally fresh. And I also think it gives me a ton of credibility within my company that I have pretty solid domain expertise over what we're doing technically. Us MBAs have no we have no oh, passion no joy. at all. <laughs> we're, we're just, we just, PJ and I actually. I mean, I think I am so. I think though, if you were to go look, how many people have done what I've done who have a bachelor's in broadcast journalism? <laughs> you might we struggle to find no time. So, 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 PJ, we should not invite Liz to just relax and look at spreadsheets with us one night. Yeah. So we'll have to skip <laughs> on that. a Friday, it, yeah, exactly, because that's what we do. I, I think though, what, what you both said about spending time with founders, and I reflect not in my time so much as an investor, but as a founder, like I actually think a lot of the learning I did was in those informal mm-hmm. discussions mm-hmm. with other founders, because you just like you hear about their experiences, you hear about how they handle them, right? And I think sort of that experiential learning is actually the most valuable part of being a founder. And I think you get it when people are actually being vulnerable about the hard things mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, everyone's like, oh, I'm crushing it. Everything's up and to the mm-hmm. right. No, it's like when you actually hear about all of the shit that doesn't work, 
that that's when you learn. At least that was my experience. Something else that my co-founder and I always do too that I think is so valuable, and it's partially about learning, but it's also about building a strong relationship with your business partner is we take a road trip together every year for a week. And uh, then we do a husband's vacation where we take our husbands on vacation with us, which we do this because it's really important to remember that we can solve other problems together, too. We can get lost at a roadside in Utah and still figure out where we're supposed to go. Mm. Uh, And I think there's a lot to be said for when you decide to start a company, it's a really selfish pursuit. And so trying to find ways to bring your family and the people who love you into the fold and not feel like you're just being eaten alive. Yeah. Talk about that, though, a little bit more, this notion of a selfish pursuit. I mean, there's just nothing more ridiculous than believing that you're going to build a billion-dollar company. I, I don't know if I can, like, <laughs> say it any better than that. And, you know, my husband loves me, but he's certainly – okay, I'll tell you a story. This is a weird story. So I, I was at dinner with my husband in downtown Denver, like, two months ago. And we're walking down the street, and a person stops me and says, I work for you. Now – we were at 100 employees at the time, I think, and I'd only seen this person in, like, a Slack icon. I had never actually been in a room with them. And so, you know, my husband and I are walking away, and my husband goes, was was that just a beautiful dose of ego juice? And I was like, no, it's not a beautiful – it's just uh-huh. ridiculous that I don't know who that person is. Like, yeah. that's what it actually is because I do think that your partner – is sort of in a front row seat to how many people are sort of artificially worshiping you or artificially treating you like you're on a pedestal when, in fact, you're still just the person who, you know, wakes up in the morning with bad breath to them. And so trying to to let them be part of the celebration and be part of the success and feel like it's not totally disconnected from your home life is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, Matt, if you're listening, we're going on a road trip, buddy. <laughs> so great. You're going to love it. <laughs> Yeah. Any thoughts about that, Chris? I mean, do you encourage certain kinds of human behaviors? You know, I mean, do you encourage your your founders to like to be with their families or to to help their families understand? I mean, families really can't. I when I had my own business and I was working hundred hour weeks, I, you know, my wife put up with it. She was sympathetic, I think, but you know, it 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 is selfish. Yeah, I mean, I think having, you know, been down the, the journey myself, like, I realize that it is not a, a one-person commitment from a founder, right, in most cases. It is a whole family commitment because of the time required, because of the emotional toll, right, and and all of that. And, you know, I look back on that and, like, I don't think I would have gotten through and did what we did with Apartment List if I didn't have such a supportive partner and family and everything around that because, you need that to get through the hard times. You need someone to understand too. Like there are times when like you might want to be doing the family thing, but you're not because something else has come up and having a partner who you can under, who understands that and a partner who you can talk with about how to find that balance, I think is important. Cause again, like, you know, going back to the thing, the thing we asked about, like, you know, how much should founders pay themselves as well. Right. Like you got to have, the founders have to have ways to to not feel stress in every dimension. And I think your your family and your personal relationships are a key part of that, yeah. right? Yeah, my, 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 I've been with my wife for 15 years and she's, I've had this bug that entire 15 years. So if anything, I think she's relieved that I finally started a business because that's better than me complaining every night that I'm going to work for the man somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I think it's, it's made our relationship uh, even stronger. 
because as Liz said, I feel like I'm probably more myself than I ever have been. Mm. And I, I think that's reflected in my relationship with my wife, which is which is, which is pretty awesome. Cool. Well, let's end on that happy note. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and today on Proco 360, you've been listening to my conversation with Chris Erickson of Range Ventures, Liz Georgie of Suna, and PJ O'Neill of Nomad. Everyone, thank you. What a fun conversation. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, fun. Dave. Thanks, everyone. Hey, one quick shout out to Jackie Slattery over at Range Ventures. She helped coordinate all this. Listeners, glad you're here on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors via technologies, the Digital Frontier and Kinsley Meetings. That's a wrap. Live, work, love Colorado.